Good afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> Good afternoon. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, as folks are getting settled on stage, I want to welcome you to the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. My name is Kate Semino, and I'm with our Center for the Study of Politics and Governance here at the Humphrey School. Uh, I want to acknowledge my great colleagues who were uh, behind putting this event together today, and we're pleased to have you all here. As always, I want to thank our sponsors who are on your program. Those are our major sponsors. We do invite uh, support of our programming at all levels, so if you're inclined to want to support this type of cross-partisan programming, um, please talk to me or uh, give us a shout and join us. Before we kick off today's program, I do want to let you know about a few upcoming events that we have on our calendar of programs at our center. One is this week, Thursday at noon, we're going to be hosting a conversation with Professor Catherine Pearson from here at uh, U of M Political Science and Professor Kelly Dittmar of Rutgers University, and that's on the topic of women running for elected office both in 2018 and now in 2020. So that's this Thursday at noon. Come on over right here. And then on December 10th, we'll be hosting a conversation on healthcare affordability and Medicare for all with LA Times journalist Noam Levy. So mark your calendar December 10th, and as always, you can register on our website. So on to today's program. Uh, the, clearly, the topic of media bias was of interest to all of you today. Uh, this is something that I'm grateful that we have some time and space to be able to uh, spend some time talking about and dig in on. And our goal is to discuss this issue from a number of different perspectives. And knowing the folks who are here today, I have no doubt we'll be well positioned to have a zesty conversation on this topic. Um, so I first we'll introduce our moderator for today and then he will be telling you more about the panelists and today's topic. So DJ Tice is the Star Tribune's commentary editor and a member of the newspaper's editorial board. He's been a writer, editor, and publisher in the Twin Cities journalism for more than 40 years. He has served as editor and publisher of a number of different magazines in the Twin Cities as well as uh, editorial writer and columnist for the St. Paul Pioneer Press. And before his current role as commentary editor for the Star Tribune, he was the state political editor, directing coverage of the legislature, state government, Minnesota congressional delegation, and elections. So thank you, DJ, for being here. We're pleased to have partnered with you on this event and looking forward to the conversation. And he'll be introducing our panelists. As always, I want to let you know that we'll be taking questions on written cards. Uh, our staff will be coming around with cards and a pencil if you need one. So be thinking of your questions if you didn't grab a card yet at the door. And um, we like to bring as many interesting questions forward as we can, and DJ will get through as many as we can uh, in the time that we've got here today. So thank you again for coming. Uh, we're grateful that you're here and grateful to have this conversation. I'll turn it over to DJ Tice. Help me welcome him. Thank you. Well, thanks very much. Thank you, Kate. Um, you know, it was quite a few months back, back in the late spring, when Larry Jacobs asked me to put together an autumn uh, panel on the extraordinary polarization of uh, politics in America uh, today, uh, surrounding the Trump presidency, and especially on the toxic uh, relationship between this president and the press. Uh, now, Larry's not an easy person to say no to. Uh, and among the unsuccessful excuses I tried was, I said, well, Larry, you know, by fall, everything may have calmed down. <laughs> you know, Trump may have learned some manners and become a completely normal president. 
journalists will have regained their composure and we won't have a thing to talk about. Well, fortunately, as Larry expected, none of that has happened. And we have plenty to talk about with uh, some seasoned and insightful observers of the political and media scene. Uh, Eric Black, uh, two seats over, has worked as a journalist since 1973. And like me, uh, he apparently hasn't had enough yet. Uh, he was a reporter with the Star Tribune for 30 years and since 2008 has written for MinPost where his Eric Black Inc. blog concerns mostly politics and history. In 2016, the Society of Professional Journalists named Black Inc. the online column of the year. Annette Meeks, immediately to my left, is the CEO of the Freedom Foundation of Minnesota an independent, nonprofit education and research organization. Her many uh, varied leadership roles in government and politics have included uh, her service in Washington as uh, uh, Deputy Chief of Staff to Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich uh, in the 1990s. Uh, from 2003 to 2011, she represented Minneapolis on the Metropolitan Council and in 2010, she was the Republican nominee uh, for lieutenant governor, running with gubernatorial nominee Tom Emmer. And you may we recall lost. they lost that election uh, after a statewide recount. Uh, a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by Ga Vang from Minnesota Public Radio, and we'll broaden our discussion at that point. I'll tell you a little bit more about her uh, at that time. Uh, but for now, let me start with you, Eric. Uh, help give us a, uh, some benefit of that historical uh, perspective and talk a little bit, if you will, about this president and his extraordinary relationship with the press and in the context of the history of presidential tensions with the press. It's certainly nothing new for presidents to have stormy uh, relations with the, the press, uh, but have we ever seen anything like this before? No. <laughs> uh, there are a few similarities and a lot of big important differences. Um, thinking about the most comparable in my lifetime would probably be Nixon's relationship with the press, which was contentious, and uh, he, um, uh, and he, he had some reporters who were on his enemies list, although he did not refer to the entire uh, journalistic community as an enemy of the people. Um, and uh, But Nixon was uh, a much more normal politician in the sense that he was an institutionalist. He understood how these things work. He didn't, he didn't come to Washington to break the system in the same way that Trump did. And um, uh, I don't think there's ever been anything in many ways that it compares to Trump, someone who would label the entire news media as an enemy of the people is insane and dangerous. Um, and when he says enemy of the people, the people he has in mind is one person himself, and uh, he views the press as an enemy, which I can understand how he might feel that way because he gets criticized a lot. Um, but um, uh, he is, uh, his reaction to it is uh, to never take seriously any criticism that comes in that way and uh, just double down on an unprecedented level of lying, 
um, which uh, probably would not have been possible for a president to get away with uh, in the days before social media where he has um, a direct unmediated link to so many of his followers. Um, and uh, I mean, he, he says things or tweets things, and I should confess, by the way, uh, I don't participate in Twitter and I don't do Facebook and I understand that they are enormously powerful and important in changing how our media system works and uh, I'm horrified by what I know about them but I'm certainly not an expert on them. But one thing that they both do is they, they cut professional journalists out of the uh, conversation because it's, you know, the Twitter account goes direct to the Twitter followers and the Facebook feed, I don't know how, exactly how that works, but I know you can set it up so that you'll get things that, that you'll agree with. Um, and the news business was supposedly designed to uh, distill down a certain amount of basic factual things you need to know. Um, and as much as possible, even though there was always criticism that the journalists were, had liberal bias or were biased in some other way, uh, the basic idea of it was to keep the bias out of it uh, except on the editorial page, and uh, that whole system seems to me to have to have gone away. Um, Trump is uh, entering, I think, uh, mad emperor territory on this stuff, where you just can't tell what uh, what ridiculously non-credible thing he's likely to say. Um, he is um, he's not just battling for his political survival and his reelection. He's battling to destroy everyone and every institution that, uh, that criticizes him. And it's not clear to me at this point that he's losing that battle. Uh, he's hanging on to his, uh, his 40%. And um, I don't claim to know whether he's, uh, uh, he's going to uh, be reelected or not, but it's, 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 it's um, not a 0% possibility. And, um, and he's demonstrated uh, through these various things that I've just alluded to that uh, his very large uh, base um, will buy um, whatever whatever he whatever he's selling. I find it really creepy. Um, uh, I was raised to believe that you had to start with facts, and they had to be accurate facts and then people could start to diverge. But if you can't get to the point, when, you, when you're at the point where you're told that the facts aren't the facts, look someplace else, it changes the whole game. Uh, before Trump, I would have said anybody that engaged in these kind of tactics would have lost their political viability. Um, but that hasn't happened. Eric, let me, let me try to uh, steer you in a, just an additional direction. Uh, what about the the character of the coverage that Trump has received uh, from the media. I mean, you've, had, you've said a lot about his conduct vis-a-vis -vis the media. Has any president been covered this way? No. Um, and um, I, 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 in my mind, that's not uh, the, um, the cause and effect that maybe your question implies might be backwards. Uh, he... Uh, he, he could have been, if he behaved like other presidents, I think he would have been covered like other presidents. Um, he changed the game with uh, his basic strategy. For example, he lies more than any other president. 
and it's the job of the media to try to get at the truth. And when you're in the position of constantly having to say to report on lies and call them lies, it, it may look like the, the press is declaring war on him. Uh, and maybe they have, but maybe he first declared war on the idea that he was supposed to uh, live in the world of facts. I want to read a quote. This is from a uh, prominent progressive pundit, I guess you would say, uh, about the Republican president. He says, I hate the way he walks. I hate the way he talks. I suspect that if I got to know him personally, I would hate him even more. I have friends who describe his existence as a constant oppressive force in their daily psyche. Now, this was not about Donald Trump. It was Jonathan Chait of the New Republic writing about George W. Bush in 2003. To my knowledge, Chait is still at large. And uh, I wonder, Annette, if you can address uh, from a Republican point of view, uh, I know mainstream Republicans like you have your own complicated views and relationship uh, with President Trump, but it's certainly nothing new to uh, be concerned about uh, a, bi a liberal bias in the press uh, from Republicans. What do you make of the, uh, the mutual hostility between the press and, and this president? How long do you have? Um, <laughs> let, let, me, let me start by addressing uh, kind of the big elephant in the room, which is I think Eric is a very fine journalist. We disagree profoundly, but I think he is a very responsible, and, and I respect what you said. I just profoundly disagree. And I have a quote. I will do dueling quotes here from a New York Times correspondent that addresses this uh, question that, that Doug just asked pretty directly, and here's the quote. If you're a working journalist and you believe that Donald J. Trump is a demagogue playing to the nation's worst racist and nationalistic tendencies, that he cozies up to anti-American dictators, and that he would be dangerous with control of the United States nuclear coast, how the heck are you supposed to cover him? And I think that's really one of the most profound things I've read um, in, in recent, uh, recent years because there is no unbiased journalism when it comes to covering Donald J. Trump. He is a president of the United States. He is no longer even afforded some of the most basic dignity uh, of the office of the presidency, that we have uh, what I refer to as Trump derangement syndrome in some cases, uh, not only from far-left journalists, where we've come to expect it for decades, but as a conservative, um, we see a, a degradation and. I will agree with Eric. Some of it is brought on by the president's behavior himself. Some of it's brought on by what I call Trump derangement syndrome. We can no longer have a civil conversation amongst friends about President Trump. I don't know about you, but um, it's just off, off limits. Unless you know somebody's ideology and you feel comfortable that they know your ideology and you can have a respectful conversation. Short of that, you don't touch this topic. And so, that I think is part of the problem. It's not just between journalists and President Trump, it's also between all of us. Uh, but I wanna take it one step further. You brought up uh, President Bush, President George W. Bush. In 1992, when George Bush was first, this is not a new problem. When President Bush was first campaigning for the presidency at that time, Vice President Bush, um, I worked for the Republican National Convention uh, very briefly that summer, doing an interesting, uh, 
thing they'd never tried this before and it was at the convention what I did was I, I worked at the House of Representatives at the time and so I would book congressmen directly with local television and print media um, I did television and I did the House of Representatives but we did interviews right from the floor of the convention with the idea of bypassing the national media that was present at the convention. It was unprecedented that we tried it, to do it this way. It was like direct-to-consumer advertising and it worked very, very well. The local TV affiliates were thrilled to have an interview with President Bush or one of his surrogates or one of the congressmen and we got to bypass the national media that we felt wouldn't give Vice President Bush a fair shake. Since that time, that's become just a normal process of any uh, national convention, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, but that tells you a lot about the cynicism of the, the tribe that follows around uh, presidential candidates and the president himself. They don't feel they get a fair shake, and I think if you talk to some of the candidates uh, going through Iowa today on the Democratic side, they would probably agree with you they don't get always a fair shake as well. So I think it's, it's a multitude of problems, uh, but I think it ultimately comes down to our culture. Um, I am on Twitter, Meeks GOP, if you're interested. Um, and, and I believe it's here to stay, like it or not. Um, I have good days and bad days. I have a lot of days where I just say, can't do the Twitter today, can't do it. Um, during the impeachment stuff, <laughs> we were laughing. Funny you're all here and not at home watching the impeachment. You're the majority of all Americans. Most people can't follow it. They don't want to follow it. They made up their mind about President Donald Trump in 2016. And I, I look at that on the front page of the paper and I just laugh. It's like, <laughs> and we wonder why people aren't, aren't all that interested in reading uh, a newspaper or watching uh, a network news anymore. That's why. I want to turn a little bit just toward uh, the question of whether and how uh, the media's own norms and, and standards have changed because, you know, someday Trump won't be president and the media will still be here <laughs> and it will still be shaping Americans' uh, ideas about their government. Um, by way of introduction to that, I, I pulled a headline uh, from just recent days in a, in a great Midwestern newspaper uh, and this is not an egregious example, but it's an example of the kind of thing that in the, during the Trump presidency, it seems to me, is a daily uh, sort of reality. The headline was, that it was a sub-headline, revelations about call further implicate Trump in Ukraine push. Well, it's not a particularly incendiary headline, but when I went to work at the Star Tribune <laughs> on the news side, we would never have written such a headline because it clearly indicates a conclusion that he has been implicated, that these are deep, dark revelations. We would have written allegations about call or maybe testimony about call, further tie Trump in Ukraine push. And I was at, in many headline meetings uh, late in the days when that kind of discussion took place and this sort of a headline would not have been allowed to get in the newspaper and this kind of headline and much more uh, egregious examples are in the papers uh, every day. Uh, so Eric, I wanted to ask you, you have done a lot of work over the years, uh, a lot of writing about the uh, evolving standards and norms uh, in journalism and what you have often called the objectivity model uh, where 
the expectation is for some kind of at least respectable appearance of impartiality and neutrality was certainly the norm when uh, when I was working in the newsroom at the at the Star Tribune and I think most of your 30 years uh, there. Uh, it seems like it has changed. Can you give us a little of your thinking about the background of that and, and whether it's changed? Uh, yes. Um, well, it, it has changed. Um, I would say it has almost broken down. Um, and um, I think that the Trump years have been very, very hard on it. Um, during the decades that I've been a journalist, uh, there were always allegations that the trouble with the objectivity model is that most journalists are liberals. And every once in a while, somebody would find a creepy way to do a study that would prove that. And uh, so uh, it, it, it's a problem. Um, if you, if for whatever reason it isn't, I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some deep explanation for why most journalists are liberals. Uh, it's not because papers are trying to, to, to stack their staffs that way, but um, uh, if, if you have a bunch of people that share deep political views deciding what's newsworthy, trying to do it on a impartial basis, it's hard to believe that some of their bias doesn't creep in. So that's, that's always been a, a problem, I would say, when you occasionally would get somebody would find a secret way to do a study that would find out how liberal most journalists were. It would be embarrassing because we were always claiming, well, it doesn't really matter. We have this method. We, we, we go by newsworthiness, blah, blah. Um, and that model has been under pressure for a long time under a number of forces, including these new breakthrough media like uh, th that don't require journalists, like Twitter and Facebook and so on. Um, but it's also the case. And of course, you're right that uh, if you know that most journalists are liberals and you think George W. Bush is getting bad press, you're going to think that's a big part of the explanation. I don't really think this applies in the same way to Trump because of his contempt for veracity and the media itself, uh, but really veracity. Um, the, the fundamental starting point of the objectivity model is that there are facts. You can't make them up, they have to be facts. Um, and deciding which facts to put in and leave out leaves perhaps too much room for bias to creep in. But when you're dealing with someone who constantly lies and never acknowledges it, and then doubles down on it, and has also this, you know, these, these new mechanisms for directly communicating those lies to a very large following, uh, I think the objectivity model, um, you know, it could, it, there could still be some, some, some uh, relics of it that are that are uh, relevant, but the whole idea that you need to get your news from people who have no bias it was it was always flawed, and now it's kind of over because the whole the whole news audience uh, has divided itself. There's hardly anybody who's looking for uh, the account that we used to try to accomplish through that model. All right, let me let me ask uh, Annette to respond to that. I Back in the day of the objectivity model, when it was in force, and there was language was carefully chosen to create at least an appearance of, of an impartiality, one often heard complaints from the conservative side 
that there was just a masquerade going on and really stories were being chosen and emphasized and, and spun in, in ways that advanced a liberal agenda. Now that things are more open and above board, is that an improvement or do you miss the old masquerade? <laughs> um, wow. Uh, my, my first thought is most conservatives have such developed such disdain for journalism, and it's mostly on a national basis. I can tell you some of the best reporting you'll read is the Star Tribune's coverage of local news. Um, there are award-winning young journalists out there every day digging up some pretty interesting stories of what's happening right here in our backyard. With that said, um, there's also huge gaping holes and cuts in journalism have resulted in, for example, there used to be an ombudsman. I'm probably the only person that was had him on speed dial. Um, but nonetheless, there was somebody I could complain to and say, this is really not a fair story for this reason and this reason. I can't name one ombudsman in any local media outlet at all anymore. Um, there's no one to complain to, and frankly, I don't think anybody cares. But this has very serious repercussions. Let me give you one local example. Um, I bet everybody in this room saw, even though you don't watch uh, Fox 9 News, saw the story last spring about $100 million per year was uh, leaving our country every, every year via Somali daycare centers. Everybody see that sensationalistic story? Lots of heads nodding. What it said was there was so much rampant fraud and abuse in Somali daycare centers that they were transporting suitcases full of cash um, that in their mind were going, they had one uh, ex-FBI agent who testified on camera that, or didn't testify, he said on camera, that he believed the money was going to Al-Shabaab. Well, that's quite an allegation, $100 million taxpayer dollars from Minnesota going to terrorist organizations. How much of that was true? We all saw it, we all heard about it, but I'll tell you where the real, real world repercussions of sensationalistic and slanted horrible journalism like that occurred. It occurred when the State House and State Senate took up the money that we get from the federal government for federal daycare, sub or for uh, state daycare subsidies. Because of the fear of all the problems endemic at our Department of Health and Human Services here in the state, which continue to be headline news every day, and this sensational news story, we froze $50 million in federal grants that could be going to daycare providers today. It should be going to daycare providers today. We have a daycare crisis in our state, and because of one really bad, uh, poorly reported, I, I, to call them lies, I won't go that far, but it was pretty close. We have hurt millions, about thousands of families around the state because of this, and there's no end in sight. People still believe there's rampant fraud, and perhaps there is, although our state uh, uh, auditor, or legislative auditor, said I don't know how you would weed out what happened and it was nowhere near $100 million. And we have no proof ever that it was going to terrorist organizations. With all that said and done, it doesn't matter. It was said, it was tweeted, it was on Facebook. People believe this is now a fact, and we have to live with the consequences. This is an excellent moment to bring uh, Gavang up uh, to join us. Guy, you want to come up and 
take that empty seat and we'll talk a little more about communities of color and indigenous communities and some of their concerns. Uh, Gav Ang is the Director of Impact and Community Engagement for American Public Media, Minnesota Public Radio. She previously worked as a print reporter for the Pioneer Press and the Chicago Tribune. A proud Hmong American, she fled Laos as a child at the end of the Vietnam War and has lived in the Twin Cities since, with the exception of a few years in Chicago, London, and Taipei. Uh, so, Ga, you've been intensively involved in efforts at, at what's called changing racial narratives in media. Uh, trying to make journalists better aware of uh, the what's called reducing, stereotyping, and absenting uh, that often describes coverage of people of color and indigenous communities. So give us a, an overview of how those communities perceive the media's uh, interaction with them, treatment of, uh, of their stories, and, and what you'd like to see change. Uh, first of all, uh, can everybody hear me? Um, thank you. Thank you, Doug, for that great introduction. I'm just thrilled to be uh, sharing the stage with you, Annette and Eric. Um, I want to start out by saying that I'm here representing myself and uh, 20 years of experience as a uh, print journalist, a researcher, and a practitioner um, in the area of uh, diversity and inclusion and community engagement. I'm not here speaking for all people of color and indigenous people. We are not monolithic. But that said, I'm, I'm going to bring my own experience um, to, to, to answer your question. So I would say that um, the perception in most communities of color and indigenous communities is that um, the media coverage um, of their communities have been um, inaccurate and biased. And even when the facts are correct, the coverage is still riddled with implicit bias, with racism, from um, the headlines to um, the framing of the stories to the quotes that are uh, are used, and I'm just gonna um, you know just you know talk about two different examples of that. So, the first example of of you know media bias is what I call the golden unicorn you know uh, story, which is that. In, in the good intention of elevating and telling a positive story, for example, you know, a, a black, you know, developer creating a, an app, you know, that, um, you know, went viral, I guess, and it, and it, that the framing of that story makes it it seems like black people don't participate in technology or that they don't have the skill set to create an app. So it's like almost like a unicorn sighting. Like, can you believe this? You know, this has never happened before. Here's like the first black person in tech to do X or the first Hmong person to do Y. So, you know, I see a lot of those. I think those those stories are uh, have good intentions and, and good reporting behind them. And certainly they're accurate, but they, they um, present a narrative of the community as though, you know, we, don't we have not contributed to like innovation or you know or technology or to business you know and that this one thing is is just a rarity as as, as so rare as a unicorn and then there's another type of story that i've seen that um though accurate is 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 not is, is doesn't tell the the complete story or the whole truth story and and actually I have an example of a headline today um from cnn so 
Over the weekend, on Sunday, uh, there was a mass shooting at a Hmong house in Fresno, California. And uh, four people were killed, several more uh, were shot, and the two suspects who came to this residential home are still at large, and police really do not know their motive. And so this is the headline today on CNN, and you all are welcome to go and Google this or just go to the website. Uh, the headline is, um, the Hmong community in California is experiencing America's, an Ameri an, excuse me, the Hmong community in California is experiencing another American milestone, their first mass shooting. So this is true, it's a fact. This is really the, our first mass shooting. But the implication is that, well, because of this mass shooting, we're now more American than we were this past weekend because we have to experience mass shooting to become American, you know? And so it also implies um, that we're not American enough, you know, even though we spent, Hmong people have been here in America for 40 years and, you know, have become doctors, pharmacists, and, you know, elected officials and, you know, have done really creative and innovative things to contribute to society. We, we, we weren't American until we hit the mass shooting milestone, according to CNN. And, you know, and, and the question is, well, when do we become Americans, you know? Um, you know, when we join the Illuminati or, you know, or get a Game of Thrones character? I mean, I don't know, you know, what's going to make us American? And, and so, you know, I, I, I pulled out these two examples because um, I think that there is like a, a fine line between like what is inaccurate and what is accurate. You know, even though stories may have facts and those facts are accurate, though there is implicit bias in those stories that um, diminishes, like, you know, people of color and their stories and their histories and, 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 and their people. Thank you. What, uh, you know, what would, do you think, uh, help improve these narratives and, and the understanding in the media. I mean, Annette talked about the you know, demise of ombudsman uh, at, uh, at papers and, and media outlets. And I mean, that's one, one route. And the other thing that it was immediately thought of, of course, is increasing the diversity of newsrooms. But that's challenging, both because there are many communities involved here, each with a unique perspective, and newsrooms are not growing very fast as a rule. Uh, and so there's not a lot of, of new uh, slots uh, to be filled. Uh, and in any event, would simply more uh, journalists of color uh, make all the difference or is something else needed? What, you know, what, uh, what are you working on to try to change this situation? You know, I, I would say yes and yes and yes and yes. I think, I think you offered, um, you know, solutions and, and you also um, identified challenges. So one of the solutions is diversifying our newsrooms. Um, you know, we know that when, when we invite um, people into the conversation with um, varying minds and perspectives and lived histories and identities, those conversations change. And when, when and and when we invite them to make decisions around you know edit, editorial decisions in newsrooms, those decisions change. Um, and so, but but at the same time, I want to acknowledge that yeah, newsrooms are shrinking. Um, the way that newsrooms have you know gained revenue has changed too. So, 
with that in mind, we posed that question, we Minnesota Public Radio and our partners um, in, in, a, uh, in a collaboration this last year, um, we, so I just want to give you a little bit of the histories of Minnesota Public Radio collaborated with uh, six other community partners, KMOJ, um, Pillsbury United, Hamlin, 360 Journalism at the University of St. Thomas, the um, Minnesota Historical Center. We, we put on um, a two-day conference to help reporters understand their own bias and assumptions. And that was funded through the St. Paul Minnesota Foundations. And so we had the same question as, as you asked, Doug, which is how can we help journalists? What do journalists need? And so we um, did a regional survey, the, kind of the first of its kind, to understand the perceptions and the attitudes of journalists and ask them what do you need to in order to tell more accurate and authentic stories. And what they told us that they needed was training. They needed more contact. They needed more training. Um, overwhelmingly, journalists told us from, from our research is that they needed more training on how to work with communities of color and indigenous communities or, or communities that have historically been marginalized, like veterans and, and homeless people. Um, at the same time, in that same survey, journalists told us that they overwhelmingly felt confident that they could still cover those communities that they didn't have any connections with. And so, the, so that tells us that there's, there's really a gap between, you know, the confidence of journalists and what, and, and, and yet at the same time they feel that they're confident, but yet they can still, I mean, yet they understand that they still need those skill sets. And I'm, I'm certainly not here to, to bash any, um, any kind of, you know, media organizations. I work for one and actually I've worked, I've worked for two in the Twin Cities, so um, I see no, you know, as a, as a former journalist, what it's like to be working on deadline and to follow that story and your, you know, and, and, and all of the, 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 the stuff that goes with being a journalist. But at the same time, I think that according to journalists from that research, the solution is training. I wonder if, um, if you see any commonality between the concerns of, of these communities of color, their feeling that, you know, they're not understood that, that journalists are not uh, you know, sensitive to the perspectives of their communities and the feeling that's fairly widespread in rural and conservative communities that journalists don't understand them and are not uh, sensitive or sympathetic to their, uh, to their um, perspectives. I, I, I see the kinds of stories that you're talking about where uh, you know, journalists go into uh, communities of color sort of as, as, as visitors and anthropologists almost. But we've had a lot of those stories uh, going out to Trump country to try to find what, out what these strange people must be thinking. Uh, and uh, I wonder, do you see any, uh, uh, any shared concerns there, different as they are? You know, it's, it's so ironic, but I mean, I do. I, I, I see the concerns, the connection between what Trump reporters are saying, excuse me, Trump uh, supporters are saying about how mainstream media folks don't understand us and, and what communities of color have been saying, you know, in, in, the, in the long history of America. I just think it's interesting, I guess that's like a Minnesota nice way of saying wow, that <laughs> now people are actually having that conversation about media bias, implicit bias in the media. Are we really getting the story correctly? And the nuances, like 
So I just find it really interesting that, you know, this conversation is coming up in the public, in the mainstream public, when these are things that I think, you know, people in my circles have been talking about for years. Let me just give uh, Eric and Annette a chance to react to some of this, and then we'll turn to a few audience questions. Uh, Eric, anything come to mind uh, from this conversation about the communities of color and their issues? Um, well, nothing brilliant. Uh, it, it's, it is a constant challenge. Um, and um, many newsrooms respond to it through uh, trying to hire a, a diverse group of reporters. Um, and I don't know how far that gets towards uh, getting, to the, uh, getting to the root of it. I think it's a, um, I th uh, it's not just an enormous challenge, it's an ongoing challenge and it's gonna remain an ongoing challenge. We're a very diverse country. Uh, our diversity is a strength and it's also a weakness and the weaknesses that people will, you know, uh, identify within, within groups in that way and it's, um, it gets in the way of identifying the commonalities. Um, and yeah, I just certainly don't, uh, don't have a, a, a magic bullet for it myself, but Annette does. I, I think all you have to do is, is watch Fox News coverage of one Trump rally to see what we're talking about. This confirmation bias, which is, uh, I'm old enough to remember Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Remember that? When Jim would go into a community and they would fear for his life. And I get the impression some of the uh, journalists that cover the presidential campaigns I never saw that when President Trump came to, or excuse me, President Obama came to the Target Center, that that journalists were afraid for their life from the yokels that were gathering to see President Obama. I distinctly got that impression watching the coverage uh, of President Trump's recent rally uh, last month here that there were journalists that thought, my gosh, these are gun-toting crazy people and, and they're gonna come and hurt me. Um, they hate me. Uh, there was an incident there of, of violence against the president by a congressional staffer. Think about that one for a second. Wouldn't that be on the front page news? At least I thought it should be. Um, never, ever saw any coverage of it. That's the confirmation bias that many conservatives have. We see things like this and think, why isn't this covered? Why isn't this part of the coverage of the president's visit? And instead it was the violence, and most of that, by the way, um, you know, it's like, well, the people came out of the rally and said hateful things with their signs. So it was our fault? Um, really, that, that's just hard to imagine. And, and that's what makes people turn off their TVs and go back to their, their Facebook friends and to their Twitter followers and, and just it, it's part of the whole symptom of, of the problem. But in, in response to having more journalists of color and uh, of other ideologies, uh, one of our uh, conservative uh, brethren in Colorado has started a program training conservatives. You know, whenever I speak to groups of college Republicans or other groups like that, one thing I always hear is, well, I'm going to be a, a, a lawyer or I'm going to do this. Rarely do you hear, if ever, any young conservative saying, I'm going to go into journalism. And they're encouraging students to do so. Young conservatives to say this is an honorable profession and it's not going to be if we don't buck it up and continue to support uh, media in all of its forms 
and we need conservatives, just like we need liberals, they have done that for decades, uh, to go into these endeavors and to bring that point of view into the newsroom, uh, I think is invaluable. It's, it's actually uh, named, the program is named after a former colleague of mine who was a trained journalist who became Newt's press secretary. And I'm just thrilled that somebody's willing to say, hey, this is a worthwhile endeavor, and it's worthwhile for us to train them to be sensitive as they go into uh, the profession on what they should be looking for and how they can help maybe at least just shed a little light in newsrooms on a different point of view. At the Star Tribune, from time to time, there'll be meetings called uh, that, that uh, never exclusively, but um, focused around subsets of journalists, be it you know, sexual orientation or, or racial group or what have you. And I've kidded with people that, you know, if we ever decided to call a meeting of the conservative Catholics at the Star <laughs> Tribune, we could probably do it in a cubicle. Uh, it wouldn't take a big meeting room. I want to turn to a couple of uh, uh, audience questions here. There's a couple along these lines, so we should address them. Uh, do you think the lack of scrutiny of Trump's positions and uh, the seeming unlimited media coverage helped elect him in 2016? And the other one wonders whether the mainstream media uh, didn't realize uh, Trump's level of falsehood uh, had, had distorted the 2016 election until it was too late. I'll, I'll just add on this front that uh, I think it, I think the press was slow to take the Trump candidacy uh, as seriously as it turned out to need to be taken. Uh, but toward the end, uh, there's never been such a heroic attempt to derail a candidacy. Uh, we had the New York Times and the Washington Post and other papers running disendorsements and not, you know, not, not endorsements of Hillary Clinton, but uh, anything but Trump uh, editorials and a series of them. I believe it was at the Post did a week of them. And our own paper about a month before election day uh, wrote a Sunday opinion section front page editorial calling on Trump to drop out of the race for a major party candidate to, uh, to back away from the race. I'm quite sure in the 150 years of the Star Tribune that was a first. So, uh, you know, the media did catch on <laughs> at some point that, that this was a real possibility and, uh, you know, made some major efforts to prevent it without success. Eric? Um, oh, one thing, I never got a chance to reply to Annette's kind remarks about uh, what a good guy I am at the beginning, and I have the same feeling about her. We've known each other for years, and, uh, and, and, um, uh, it is, uh, and Doug and I are good friends, and it is great to have uh, friends who uh, come from a different ideological place that you can build an up, up enough trust to really hear um, uh, the other version of reality that you're not getting because you hang out with people who think like you do, and I just wanted to, uh, to get that said. Um, but I want to double down on, um, I mean, confirmation bias, uh, liberal bias, um, selective perception, these are, these are the old problems of the media, especially when the media was basically uh, a mostly liberal group of reporters who were pretending they were objective, even though they were trying hard to be objective. There's only so objective you can be if you have these underlying feelings. Uh, I get all that, but I wouldn't want to put it on the same level as, con as constant lying. I mean, the lying is, is the next line across. 
and it's kind of an emergency in my view in terms of the long-term challenge of an informed electorate. Uh, seeing through bias is hard, and if you're getting a, if you're getting, and I can understand how someone who's been a Minnesota conservative all these years as a net have, has can see the 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 liberal bias of local journalists as uh, a pretty big deal, and I don't really dispute it because I'm so open-minded, but um, <laughs> um, but it but it's not the same as lying. And the treatment of various previous Republican presidents probably reflected the liberal bias. And some of the treatment of Trump may reflect the liberal bias. But this is a different order of magnitude for me. Uh, the, the question is whether facts or, or truth matter. And I think it's a pretty big emergency. And I, and I really don't like the way it's going. And I also think that the, uh, you know, the, the breakdown, uh, or, or let's say the the, new the various new media platforms are, part, are more part of the problem than they are part of the solution. The, the old model, with all of its flaws, uh, had the strength of, uh, of at least f uh, an ideology that fought against the bias and that created a um, sort of a common understanding about what newsworthy things happened. And now we have just people on, on, on almost different planets. Let me try another one here that raises a somewhat different aspect of things. Uh, would you think that the amount of consolidation uh, with either local media buyouts or uh, squeezing out nuanced voices, uh, journalism has folded to a profit-branded uh, content form? Uh, I'll turn this over to you. I, you know, I think. Uh, the media has been a for-profit enterprise for a long time. Uh, what's really changed, it seems to me, is that it used to be easy to make a profit. <laughs> you couldn't help but make a profit if you had a dominant uh, newspaper in a, in a major market. And as a result, in some ways, you could, uh, you could um, afford to be responsible. I think what this question does go to is that the difficulties in the news business uh, today have forced people to reconsider, you know, what what's the best business plan? The best business plan used to be play it down the middle and you get the biggest swath of the market, right? Everybody can find something to uh, a value in your paper. Now we seem to be going back to more of a niche kind of uh, marketing where you give a slice of the of the population exactly what it wants and you give that to them all the time. If you tune into Fox News or MSNBC, you don't have to wonder you know, what political attitude you're gonna get. It's always there for you if that's what you want. It's sort of like tuning into a rock and roll music station or a country and western one. You want what you want and they'll give it to you. And that's the business model we're headed toward. And Annette, any thoughts? I, I think it's actually gonna get um, more refined than where we're at today, that this is a trend that's irreversible. I heard this morning on the radio, uh, commercial radio, uh, that I think this is so interesting, I'll make sure I get the number right, there are 270 streaming channels available. I thought there were maybe 10. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of in the Hulu, Netflix world, but when you start talking about there's a horse channel, it's like, who knew? But, <laughs> but, but that's what we're, that's what, 
people are tuning into. It's my niche. I am a horse person. I want to watch horse, all, horse TV all the time, and they can do so. And I think that's one thing that our, and I, I hesitate to use the term, I swore I wasn't going to, the mainstream media has missed altogether, which is really the nichification, um, if I may verbalize that, uh, of, of how we get our news. And it's not only uh, confirming what we already believe, but we want it when we want it. So if it's on um, a podcast or whatever it may be, uh, we can watch it at our leisure. We can watch it. Um, my DVR is always 90% full because there's something I want to watch that when I'm not home. And, and so we become so nichified um, in, in how we get it and what we watch that, frankly, I think there's a lot of stuff out there we just can't even consume. I think it's why books, I still buy hardcover books. Am I a dinosaur or what? Nobody buys hardcover books anymore. I do. Um, but that's why we don't have a corner bookstore anymore, and independent bookstores are, are really going away. Um, we want a book. We call up Amazon on our computer. We order it. It comes the next day. We're good. Uh, but that's really just how we process different things that 20 years ago were impossible. I wanna, and I think that's really happening <clears throat> with the news. Yeah, I want to bring Ga in on this. I wonder, uh, Ga, whether this very fragmentation and nichification uh, of, the, uh, of the media creates any opportunities for these smaller communities to, you know, to find uh, media that uh, is both more focused and more nuanced, more attentive to uh, uh, to their perspectives. Is that any kind of a of an opportunity, or or you know, does it just present new challenges? I I think it is an opportunity. Uh, it is an opportunity, but I think more than that, it highlights what has historically happened in communities of color and indigenous communities, which is that we already have niche media. You know, uh, when you think regionally about uh, niche media, I'll just call out a few, you know, KMOJ, which is, you know, a hip hop urban radio station, or the Spokesman Recorder, Asian American Press, we already had to create our own niche media um, in order to thrive because we didn't feel that uh, communities of color were covered well by mainstream journalists, you know. So um, we created our own niche media, not, you know, not out of, like, interest per se, but I, actually out of, like, just survival, you know. Um, and so, but, but getting back to your larger question, I feel like there's always been, uh, you know, like, historically some consolidation, you know, of, of media here and there, and, and there's always going to be, like, you know, I know the Jeff Bezos of the world, or or like that, that publisher. You know, I, I came up from the Knight Ritter papers, so a family that owns a newspaper, and they're always going to have their imprint. And I feel like, in terms of like the the the, the revenue models of, of media, it's always going to change. You know, because the the tastes and and the and the and the the communities are changing in 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 um, in, in the larger American uh, American culture. So, you know. I think what we have to do as as media makers is to listen to our audiences and figure out, you know, what really, what is the best way to, you know, create neutral and unbiased content that's gonna ref more authentically reflect um, those people that are in our communities. Right now, people of color make up 21% of the. The, of Minnesota, but is 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 are those newsrooms twenty one percent or you know or you know or are those contents content those media stories if you look at it is it twenty one percent or even beyond, 
you know, it's not. All right, another question from the uh, audience here. Uh, does anyone on the panel honestly believe hard news reporters for the New York Times and Washington Post are not liberally biased? I can answer that, no. no. None of us, honestly, no. no. I, you know, what I will say about this is everybody has a bias. Everybody has political ideas and preferences. And when I was in the newsroom, I was supervising reporters, and they all had, you know, political ideas. But it is possible, was possible, under the old late lamented objectivity model, for reporters to endeavor to set their own views aside and report the news fairly and, and in a balanced way. Even Eric used to do it. <laughs> you know, D Doug, I want to I answer that. I, I want to address that because there are people in my universe that feels that media does not have a liberal bias. They have a conservative bias. That mainstream media has a conservative bias. Um, because if you haven't had the lived experience of, of being you know, a person of color, how, how could you understand, how could you be a storyteller for that? Or if you, lived experience doesn't mean that you have to you know, become Asian or you know, become black, but if you, if you don't have friends, if you don't frequent those uh, grocery stores or, or those restaurants or you don't read those books, um, you know, then, then you are, will have bias against people of color and there's a perception is that those bias are conservative bias. So I think that there are some people that believe that the media has a conservative bias and not a liberal bias. Indeed there are, uh, but this topic uh, raises an issue. I wanted to take a look at this very interesting Gallup poll. This is from uh, September. Uh, uh, this is, they've been doing annually this poll for many, many years, uh, just asking American adults whether they trust the uh, news media. TV, radio, newspapers is what they Mention And you see here uh, three fever lines going back to 1997 uh, for Democrats, independents, and Republicans. And over time, you see a general downward trend for many years. Uh, all, at all times, Democrats have the most confidence in the press. Independents are in the middle and Republicans the least. But what is fascinating is when you look to the right to what happens in 2016, all along, all those decades, all three groups are gradually becoming a little less trustful of the media. In two, 2016, suddenly, uh, we get a change with the Republican trust level plummeting uh, from somewhere in the 30s to about 15%, while the Democratic trust climbs to the highest level that they've ever measured. So something is going on here. The old rough rule of thumb in the press was that if both sides are complaining, we must be doing something right. If this is a real reflection of what's going on, both sides are no longer complaining, uh, at least in a statistical way. Uh, Democrats are pretty happy with the media's performance at the moment. Uh, Republicans have never been so unhappy. Anybody want to speculate on what the explanation for that is? Uh, okay. <laughs> I thought he would. <laughs> but it's, but, but I'm going to be a broken record, but um, uh, if, as I've suggested a couple of times, um, the, the lying of the Trump period is a big deal, 
uh, it's kind of obvious to me that the people in one party are going to appreciate an aggressive attack on that lying, and the people in the party that that candidate represents are going to view it as partisanship rather than, let's say, truth-seeking or truth-squatting, uh, those statements. So, um, you know, this whole business of uh, truth-squatting is fairly new to journalism. We were always supposed to get our facts right, but it's relatively new that we, we have these fact-checker columns and, uh, you know, uh, and I, and I, and I consume them all, I love them, uh, I always learn something from them, uh, but it's, it, it's seldom good for Trump. Um, but uh, they have a whole, they're, they're, they're taking, they're sort of taking a step back, they don't have to ask themselves these questions of what's newsworthy and did I talk to somebody from each side of this argument, they're just dealing with very specific factual analysis. Now, Maybe Annette thinks those, the fact checkers are biased against Trump because they certainly find that he lies a lot and I don't know how much of it might be bias. Um, but it would seem to explain if, if Democrats felt like me that you just can't allow someone to lie this much and not just break the old rule and just say he's lying, people, he's lying. Uh, that's going to be very heartening to them during an election year, and it's going to look like uh, bias to Republicans because they're saying, oh, they never did this when Clinton lied. Annette? Uh, he, he just said it. Um, that is exactly what I think most conservatives believe, is that where were these fact checkers when President Clinton was telling his version of what was happening? And, and I'm not talking about impeachment, I'm talking about just in general. And I think that's been a pervasive attitude that has driven this wedge uh, over time to become a further and further, now it's just a gulf divide that we no longer trust the mass media. And I think that's a pervasive feeling amongst conservatives. I think it's also the rise of Donald Trump, that when you talk to Trump supporters, one of the first things they will tell you is, he tells it like it is. Now, if I talk to Eric Black, he will say, well, he lies about how it is. That's, that's, that's that gulf you're seeing right up there. Most people, most Trump supporters, will tell you he has the courage to say what needs to be said. And I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from a friend of mine. Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest problems we have. And how we bridge this divide is going to be a very, very tough. It, I, I'm taking a class out in Colorado. And one of the things I was most surprised about is they still have a very aggressive uh, course requirement for their students in both economics and in civics. And their civics class requirements are extremely um, well developed and they start in, in it's pervasive through K-12. And I started questioning, it's like, wow, that's just wonderful. And they teach their kids about the Constitution and they teach them about what the First Amendment means and all of these different things. And you look at that and think, with all of the problems we have in this country, wouldn't that be wonderful if we had at least a well-educated uh, workforce out there that understood what the First Amendment is and what it isn't, and what freedom of the press really means and what it isn't, but we no longer even bother to teach that here. So why, would we, why wouldn't we expect that? I also favor learning about the Constitution. <laughs> we can agree. Uh, can we discuss right-wing media like Fox News and further right organizations and their effect on media discourse? Given uh, Fox News-wide viewership, we can't pretend it doesn't affect uh, mainstream narratives. Uh, 
true enough, and as it happens, we have an, oops, went one too many. Uh, another chart here, um, it's also, this is from the Washington Post. Uh, this is asking uh, the same uh, Democrats, Republicans, uh, independents, what's their most trusted source? These are all broadcast or cable or radio uh, sources. And you see Fox News being far and away uh, the most trusted source for Republicans. Uh, about the same total number or percentage of Democrats are distributed among uh, CNN, MSNBC, and public broadcasting. Uh, but clearly two, uh, two universes uh, apart. Uh, but I, this is a, a reality that Fox News is, you know, it's been around a while now, but it has, uh, it has changed uh, the landscape, there are surely on internet plenty of other and, and you know, more extreme sites, but Fox is the, you know, is the big player. Uh, in fact, it's far and away the biggest uh, player in, uh, in cable news. So w what do we make of, of that impact on, uh, on the media and all these issues we've been discussing? I'll start with that. There would be no Fox News if conservatives believed there was no liberal bias in the news. And, and I say that as a proud conservative, that how many, well, maybe not you, but I do, um, scream at the news every night when you watch it at 6 o'clock. And eventually there hits a boiling point where you just turn it off and say, I'm not going to watch that anymore. That's terrible. And especially when you view it with such bias with the stories, I think God mentioned this, the stories that they don't cover. Uh, the stories, there's an interesting article uh, I was reading yesterday about this topic that because of all the, the impeachment uh, coverage, there's very little, and I'll get the number wrong here, um, in the six weeks since uh, Speaker Pelosi announced they would have uh, impeachment hearings, there's been very little coverage about anything else that has happened uh, by President Trump. It's impeachment, 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 and it's impeachment all the time, um, regardless of uh, some of the other major things that have happened. And so the, the only reason why Fox News is sky high here amongst conservatives, it's all we have. We don't have CNN, we don't have MSNBC, we don't have the major broadcast networks. They are, they are not talking to conservatives about issues we are concerned about. And, and I may add, Fox News does a terrific job of playing to their audience and giving us what we want and, and, and frankly, doing it on a pretty entertaining basis. There's some shows that uh, even I can't watch, which is, I know, hard to imagine, uh, but uh, they're, they're but for the most part, I can turn that on at 6 o'clock and get a pretty decent um, analysis of what happened that day in the news, and it's not going to be 100%. Trump did this, and he's an idiot. Uh, I'll, I'll take a shot at, the, at, the, at that, too. Um, Fox news shows, of which there are very few, most of them are commentary shows, are much better than liberals think they are. But the, when people are answering this question, I believe that they are not separating between the news and the commentary shows. And the big stars, the big rating stars, have always been Hannity, and, bef and before that used to be O'Reilly, too, who are about as biased and uh, untrustworthy as it's possible to be. And that's where the big numbers are coming from, and that's, uh, and, I, and I believe, I have to believe when people ask that question. I shouldn't. I shouldn't just guess. But people uh, were were commenting on which network in general, 
talking about public affairs, including commentary, they like. And it's easy for me to understand uh, why the Republican Party in its Trump period, uh, and even before, uh, has embraced um, the Hannity, and before that, the O'Reilly uh, take on the news. Um, MSNBC is sort of the fox of the left, although um, I don't I don't think, it, I think that they, that, that they and I, I don't really know much about their ratings. I assume Rachel Maddow is their big star. And she's about as far left as those guys are right. Uh, I don't think she lies as much, but, um, but she's certainly not presenting herself as, uh, as uh, playing the objectivity game. CNN probably gets lumped in with MSNBC more than it should. It's closer to an old-fashioned news network. It's closer to the middle. It's not, but you know, the liberal bias can be identified in some in some areas. But it's a mistake to to treat them as uh, interchangeable. Um, and I, I recently um, interviewed uh, a, a University of Minnesota professor who's in media. And I kept referring to the Fox MSNBC effect, and isn't this a crisis that people are going now to these two completely separate universes to get their information? And just because he's an expert and I'm not, I assume he knows what he's talking about. He said, you're probably overstating this. Uh, the, the, neither of those channels has a really big audience. And there's much more going on that's feeding the polarization. And in the big picture, uh, they don't have the huge audience. I looked this up a while ago um, in connection with this. Hannity is far and away the biggest thing on, on cable uh, news. Um, and his audience is considerably smaller than God friended me. So keep that in. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's the point that that person was <laughs> making to me. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's, if, if, like me, you thought everybody was, the whole country was dividing into people who are watching Fox and people who are watching MSNBC, it's not. They're watching God Friended Me. <laughs> Ga, I wanted to uh, feel free to comment on, in general on this, but I wondered, in, you are familiar with research telling us uh, much about communities of color specifically and, you know, where they... What, what media they trust, where they go for, uh, uh, for information they can rely on. I would say that, uh, you know, it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's those historical niche community uh, media groups that communities of color um, trust and rely on. They're not perfect, they're problematic in their own ways, but it's that they were written by people that look like us, that have our lived experiences sound like us, and therefore, we trust it more, you know, than, than, you know, Minnesota Public Radio, the Star Tribune, or the Pioneer Press. Um, actually, because I want to comment about, about that graph. I think the, there's implications about um, how, how, that, how the opinions of, of, of Americans and who they trust and what media source they trust. Like, there's implications for media, but I think the bigger implication is actually... Um, for, 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 for us Americans, and I'm just gonna use my, you know, use, use my in-laws as an example. My, my father-in-law 
Los Fox News. And he has a, he's 80, he has a blasting in the living room. And my mother-in-law loves MSN, NBC, you know, NBC, and she has a blast in the kitchen. And, and so she, she went to the Women's March right and, and knitted pink caps, you know, for all her friends. And, and so, you know, they're really on the, uh, you know, on, on like the different places in the political spectrum. And I think that they might get a divorce because of Donald Trump. They, after, after, you know, being married for 60 years, they no longer can talk to each other about politics, you know. And these are two people who successfully been married and have, you know, raised, you know, their kids together and grandkids. I think that, you know, I think that this whole uh, inability for us to have political discord, course, excuse me, political discourse has 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 a great impact, you know, on on our lived experience. And and I I feel like I have anxiety, you know, because because of like the I guess you know because of this graph, you know. Don't don't let don't let them get divorced. Have them sell their story to, for a sitcom, and it will be a huge hit. Okay, I will tell them that. If it makes you feel any better, my, my fraternal grandparents uh, were divided between the Irish Catholic who could not support uh, the candidacy of Senator Kennedy any more than he could and his Irish Catholic wife who said, I will divorce you if you vote for that man. Okay. So they survived. Thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> uh, one final question from the audience, uh, a good one to end on, I think. Uh, it says the press, has, the press changed its behavior uh, while covering Joe McCarthy uh, and after he left. Uh, will Trump have the same effect? I wish I had a better sense of exactly what kind of change the, uh, we're talking about uh, following McCarthy, but I, I get the idea that he had a lasting uh, impact uh, after he, even after he was gone, and there will come a day when Trump is no longer president, one way or another, and I wonder, Will things ever return to more of what we were used to? Is this a new normal, the new partisan press? Uh, what do you think comes next? Annette? Wow, I pray this isn't the new normal, that we have this level of, um, of, of terrific divide uh, and, and hostility towards one another and towards uh, opposing political viewpoints. I pray that's not the case. On the other hand, um, when people leave office, uh, it takes a while for the dust to settle, and I wasn't around for McCarthy, but what history I've read about those days, it was horribly contentious, um, and even more so afterwards because of the repercussions of the legacy left behind. With all that said and done, I, I, I fond, fondly recall sitting here, actually this building wasn't here, uh, but at the University of Minnesota when President Reagan was elected, and as a political science major, and said to my professor on the day he was being sworn in, um, by the way, I had a big Reagan button on my ski jacket. This is what a dark guy was, Eric. And had a professor come up to me, asked me to see, asked me to see him after class, and I said, "Why?" And when I got up there, and he said, "You're too young to be that conservative." <laughs> yeah. And so I said, "Oh, okay. Um, what, 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 what's wrong with that?" He said, "I'm teaching a class next next quarter. You sh it's called Introduction to Marxism, and you should take it." And I thought that was a very interesting moment because I would be interested in learning about other political ideologies, but I thought Ronald Reagan was a great leader. And so on the day that he was sworn in, and recall, this is also the day the hostages were freed, um, I told him I wouldn't be coming to class. I couldn't believe we were gonna have class. 
and he said, why? I said, well, we're political science majors, and, and, and history is being made today. I, I'm going to stay home and watch it on TV. And he said, that's your prerogative. You're responsible for anything you miss. This is not a day of celebration, and walked away from me. And, and so I, I, history today is very kind to Ronald Reagan, and I suspect that professor, if he were still around, probably would say he wasn't the great disaster that he feared he was going to be in, no, in January of 1981. Um, with all that said and done, um, I, I pray that that is the case. And as I tell my liberal friends who sometimes think the end of the world is, is coming because of the, something Donald Trump tweeted that morning, um, first of all, turn off the Twitter. And, and number two, our, our, our republic is safe. Our republic is strong. And we will survive this. We've survived a lot of other different perceived crises. And, and we need to believe in one another a lot more than we do and have faith in, in, in the republic that was created for us and, and the incredible um, insight that our founders had um, when things maybe go, don't go your way. So I have a lot of faith that someday history will look back on this as an interesting time. Um, but uh, I think that President Donald Trump, whether or not he's reelected, I don't have my crystal ball here today. I don't know what will happen. But I do know that uh, give it 20 years for the dust to settle, and we'll have a very different conversation. Eric, life after Trump. Yeah, if this was a Frank Capra movie, we know it would have a happy ending. Um, I'm quite worried uh, that the forces that are separating us are more powerful than the forces that unify us and that the uh, the changes that we've been discussing for the last, uh, we've been here six hours, what? Um, <laughs> you know, the changes that we've been discussing here, which is about the media's role in the polarization, uh, are, you know, they're, I think they're very powerful and they're very, they're very strong right now. I don't claim to be able to see 100 years into the future, but I don't, I don't see that uh, Jimmy Stewart movie ending on the horizon. Uh, uh, Trump won't be president forever. Um, it's not all about Trump, but there are, and, and to some degree, the rise of Trump is somewhat about the media polarization. But I do think that the, uh, I think it's very unhealthy for our American project to um, have this division according to uh, which version of the news we're going to consume, especially when they, those two versions agree, disagree on so much and agree on so little. Yeah, I, I just want to address that. I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I, I don't know what's going to happen. But my guess is that we are going to be more divided than ever. And the reason is that we can curate our, our, our news now. You know, and we can consume it in so many different ways, whether it's on a smartphone or a podcast or, you know, online or, you know, I just think about my, my own children I have three very young kids and they're curating their experiences. They have their own YouTube channels. Um, I, because of research, they only watch it for one hour now. But, I mean, they have their own YouTube channels that they curate for themselves. Like, they're really curating their whole whole life because they have the ability to. And when you're curating what you like and don't like, it's getting back to what Annette said, which is a nif nif nichification of your life, you know. And so I fear that 
because of uh, our ability to, to curate our own lives and, and therefore our own news that we're going to be more polarized, you know, as individuals, as, as citizens more than ever, whether it's Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or, or somebody else, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, but we're still curating. And I think that it's not so much um, an indictment of like what Donald Trump has bought, but maybe what technology has brought and, and how technology has, has you know, impacted the way that we consume media and make decisions. Thank you. I, I would just add that uh, I do worry that Trump and polarization are in some ways good for the news media uh, in a business sense. I think nothing so good has ever happened to cable news, uh, talk fest and, and talk radio, and even some of the the big national papers have found it very effective to, uh, you know, target, especially in their online uh, efforts, uh, you know, kind of being the anti, the anti-Trump. And so I worry that that political polarization, uh, you know, sort of helps fuel interest uh, in news. And so, as just a business proposition, will there'll be a temptation to foment it. Uh, in the media rather than, than combat it. I would just close then on the uh, charge to you all, uh, you know, to let uh, less polarized America begin with you. Uh, you know, Eric mentioned that he and I are, are good friends. Not only that, but we admit it publicly. Uh, and uh, uh, make friend, if you're a liberal, make friend with a conservative. If you're a conservative, make friends uh, with a liberal you know, watch more than one uh, cable news outlet if you much wa must watch uh, cable news. And, you know, when you talk to your friend across the divide or, or watch, uh, you know, the other tribes' uh, media, try to hear what is being said more than try to imagine what the crushing argument uh, you can come back at them with is. Uh, just try first to understand and We'll take it one person at a time. So thank you, Gavang. Thank you, Eric Black. Thank you, Annette Meeks. Thank you all for being here. Thank you.